Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. That would be me. I'm Paul Stetzel. Today, I'm going to tell you a story with plenty of implications for both world history and how we study history. I'm going to tell you this story at the request of a listener, Chris from New York, uh, but I'm going to do this a little differently than the last time I had a listener request episode. I'm not going to tell you what Chris asked until after I tell you the story. The story takes place late in the First World War. Let me state up front that much of my information for this comes from a website called FirstWorldWar.com. There's a reason I'm looking at this website for this story in particular, and I'll tell you why in just a few moments. Uh, but I would like to mention that FirstWorldWar.com is a great website. I have high praise, and I, I highly recommend it if you're looking for information about the war. This is a story about Henry Tandy, one of, if not the most highly decorated soldiers uh, that the British had to offer in the war, which, given that over four million Brits served in the war, that's not too shabby. He served in the war starting right off the bat at the Battle of Ypres and was wounded at the Battle of the Somme. He was wounded again at Passchendaele. He was at the Second Battle of Cambrai, where his actions won him the Distinguished Conduct Medal, and within a few weeks of that, he fought at Havering Court, where his capture of some enemy soldiers resulted in his being awarded the Military Medal. I know the Military Medal sounds awfully generic, but to a British soldier in the First World War, that was actually a, that was a pretty big deal. It was almost as good as his Distinguished Conduct Medal. Within weeks of that, he was at Marcoing, where his actions won him the single highest honor a soldier could receive. At Marcoing, he was, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. And it is his actions at Marcoing that I want to tell you about today. The First World War is famous for trench warfare. Tandy had seen a lot of it during the war. Uh, anyone who witnessed the Battle of the Somme, one of the bloodiest battles of all time, knew that what trench warfare was all about. For the militarily disinclined among us, that's where the soldiers dig trenches deep enough to stand in and not be exposed to the enemy, and the armies operated within networks of these trenches, which spread out for miles and miles along the front. The space between your trenches and the enemy's trenches was called no man's land, and any no-man's land was quickly turned into a desolate wasteland. The cannons would fire away over and over and over again for hours or days at a time, but because the soldiers were protected by the trenches, for the most part all they did was wipe out all the vegetation between the trenches. But soldiers who attempted to cross it, and they charged across every now and then, were usually sitting ducks waiting to be shot down in a remarkably futile effort. Just imagine any large open field with armed soldiers at one end shooting at you as you try to run across it uh, towards those enemy soldiers. Tandy had done just that at 2nd Cambrai. Uh, yeah, that's what actually won him the Distinguished Conduct Medal. But Marcoing was different, and I want to make sure you understand the difference because people have a certain image in their head of the First World War, and Marcoing was not bad. Marcoing was the location of a crossing on a canal, and a bridge there, uh, by the way, do I really have to refer you to the last two episodes? Uh, the bridge there was crucial for the British. Tandy's actions concerning this crossings were what earned him his medal, again, uh, and I'm going to quote the story told by a fellow private who witnessed the event. By the way, the testimony can be found in The History of the Duke of Wellington's 
but I found this on Wikipedia. Remember that. This professional historian, this guy right here, is telling you that he dug this up on Wikipedia. I'll come back to that point later. One uh, private lister had the following to say, and, and by the way, again, for the mil militarily disinclined, Lister uses the abbreviation MG in this quote. Uh, MG will stand for machine gun. Quote, on 28 September 1918, during the taking of the crossing over the Canal de Saint-Quentin at Marcoing, I was number one of the Lewis gun team of my platoon. I witnessed the whole of the gallantry of Private Tandy throughout the day. Under intensively heavy fire, he crawled forward in the village when we were held up by the enemy MG and found where it was, and then led myself and comrades with the gun into a house from where we were able to bring Lewis gunfire on the MG and knock it out of action. Later, when we got to the crossings and the bridge was down, Private Tandy, under the fiercest aimed MG fire, went forward and replaced planks over the bad part of the bridge to enable us all to cross without delay, which would otherwise have ensued. On the same evening, when we made another attack, we were completely surrounded by Germans, and we thought the position might be lost. Private Tandy, without hesitation, though he was twice wounded very nastily, took the leading part in our bayonet charge on the enemy to get clear. Though absolutely faint, he refused to leave us until we had completely finished our job, collected our prisoners, and restored the line. Unquote. At some point late in the battle, a young German corporal meandered out of the chaos. Uh, he was battle-weary. Um, you know that haze you find yourself in when you're really tired and you start zoning out? Yeah, that's, that's not even close. Marcoing is a town, and there's a very famous painting of the battle's aftermath showing buildings still standing in this town, so I imagine the corporal came out from behind a wall or a, a large enough pile of debris that he wasn't uh, noticed until he was in plain view. Who's plain view? None other than Private Tandy. Tandy had the German in his sights, but the German soldier just stood there, waiting. He didn't raise his gun to take aim. He didn't turn to run. He just stood there staring at Tandy. So what did Tandy do? In his own words, quote, I took aim but couldn't shoot a wounded man, said Tandy, so I let him go, Unquote. The German corporal nodded his appreciation and the two parted ways. Well, what happened next? Well, the war actually ended shortly afterwards. Tandy was awarded his medals, at least one of them given to him personally by King George V himself. He left the service for an entire day, then re-enlisted and stayed in the British Army until the mid-twenties. Uh, during his service, he served in Gibraltar, Turkey, and Egypt. When he finally left the service, he settled down and got married. He went to work for the Standard Motor Company, where he worked as a plant chief for 38 years. He and his wife never had any children, and he died in the late 1970s, apparently remaining in relative obscurity for the rest of his life, with the exception of when this particular story came to light. So what happened to the German corporal I mentioned? He's actually the whole point in telling this story. He was wounded late in the war in a gas attack, and twice he became temporarily blind. He, like many other Germans, were severely put out by the way the war ended, and he became something of a malcontent. Like Tandy, he spent part of his life in obscurity, 
But unlike Tandy, he actually ended up in jail for rowdy behavior. And like many reformed convicts, he spent his time in jail and wrote a book, then went into public service, became chancellor of Germany, started the next world war by invading Poland, and attempted to exterminate the Jews, as so many reformed convicts often do. Chris, the fellow who asked me to tell you this story, he simply asked me to tell the details of a story about a British soldier who had the opportunity to kill Hitler long before Hitler was a byword for monster. These have been the details of the story, kind of. The real story here is the interest historians have in the story. Why, you so eagerly ask? The fact that Tandy had the opportunity to kill Hitler is, in fact, inconsequential. Lots of people had the chance to kill other people throughout history. In fact, rumor has it that there were a lot of Germans trying to kill a lot of Brits and Americans and Frenchmen uh, right around the same time as this story, uh, and vice versa. Uh, it was this whole big thing. It was called the Great War or World War I. You, you may have heard of it. Besides, Tandy had no knowledge of the future and could not have predicted the consequences of his inaction. As it happens, he wasn't made aware of the corporal's identity for 20 more years when he received a call from none other than the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. Here's another part of the story I want to make sure we cover, since it will become important in the final analysis. According to the story told by Tandy's family in the Evening Gazette many, many years later, Tandy received a phone call one night. Here is the story related to the Gazette by Tandy's nephew, who was in the room when this supposedly happened. Quote, One evening, the telephone rang, and Henry went off to answer it. When he came back, he commented matter-of-factly that it had been Mr. Chamberlain. He had just returned from a meeting with Hitler, and whilst at Birch's Garden, had noticed the painting by Matanya of the second Greenhowards at the Menin Crossroads in 1914. Chamberlain had asked what it was doing there, and in reply, Hitler had pointed out Tandy in the foreground and commented, quote, That's the man who nearly shot me, unquote. The painting being referred to was an artistic reproduction of an actual photograph showing Tandy carrying a wounded man from the battlefield. The image was, uh, was very famous in its day, and since Tandy was well known because of his bravery, uh, everyone knew it was him. Furthermore, we know that Hitler did indeed own a very large copy of this portrait. But how much of this story can we assume to be true? It has some earmarks of a made-up tall tale, so I want to talk about this. For example, uh, I mentioned earlier that I found most of this information, when I first gave the presentation on which this episode is based, on a website called FirstWorldWar.com, and I was able to supplement that research with information found on <coughs> Wikipedia. While FirstWorldWar.com is a very well-organized and well-researched source of information, I try my best not to quote it when seeking information on the First World War. Why not? Paul, it's such a great website. Why don't you quote it? Well, here's why. Go to that website and look under the uh, About This Site section, and you will find the following. Quote, a word of caution, however, this is by no means an academic website. It's authored as spare time permits and is geared toward a general rather than scholarly readership. Given this, it is not recommended that this site be used for academic reference purposes for school or university papers. This does not so much indicate a concerning lack of authorial confidence in the accuracy of site content 
as an acknowledgement that material on the site has not been submitted for formal peer review. Unquote. Now, that's fine. That's fine. And that's not a problem. I don't mind the lack of peer review. If you've been paying attention in the last few years, you might have noticed some really big problems with the modern peer review process. The, the process itself is, is hopelessly broken. But this site is so well documented, I normally have no trouble believing what is there. Simple, it's simple enough, really. If you have doubts about the information found on the site, simply follow the, the documentation of the work cited. However, in this case, there isn't much to back the story up. There aren't very many corroborating sources, and the ones that are mentioned are not easily located. So we instantly have to take this with a grain of salt. The fact that I had to rely on <laughs> Wikipedia for the remainder of the information is not a good sign. Fortunately, we can follow the same rule. Simply check the work cited and see the references for yourself. What is the first reference cited on the Henry Tandy article on Wikipedia? When I first put this presentation together, it was FirstWorldWar.com. At the time this was recorded, in July of 2023, FirstWorldWar.com is still on the list, just not at the top. Either way, this is not encouraging. In fact, I had a lot of trouble finding this story. I had never heard of it before Chris brought it to my attention. Uh, that was about 13 years ago. And 13 years later, I'm still not sure I've heard of it. Samuel Mitchum, in his book, Why Hitler, the Genesis of the Nazi Reich, discusses the future Fuhrer's World War I service in some detail, including several instances where Hitler could have and should have died, and yet his salvation through an act of humanity in the most inhumane place on earth appears nowhere. The same goes for John Tolan's monumental biography of Hitler. In fact, in finding the story, I was restricted entirely to sources I found online, and most of those sourced their material from, you guessed it, FirstWorldWar.com. So we are essentially left with what we find there, and what is there leads to a back and forth on the question of the story's veracity. On the other hand, Tandy stated in an interview during the war that he was in the habit of sparing enemy soldiers. This statement came before the incident with Hitler, and long before Tandy knew who he had spared. On the other hand, at Marcoing, Tandy had been busy taking prisoners. It's one of the things that was earning him all those medals. It was his bag, baby, and here was a prisoner ripe for the taking. And yet, hmm. Tandy never knew his counterpart until after the Munich conference. He certainly knew who Hitler was and knew his face very well because, well, all Brits did by 1938. But how did Hitler know Tandy? According to the story, Hitler recognized Tandy's picture in a newspaper article he found celebrating Tandy's Victoria Cross medal. He kept the picture and never forgot Tandy, who for the, most, uh, for the moment was more famous than Hitler was. What I'm saying is, we are taking Hitler's word for this. Now, on the one hand, we should feel icky taking Hitler's word for anything. But on the other hand, if people had taken him at his word after he wrote Mein Kampf, Chamberlain and his counterparts in the rest of Europe might have had a little more backbone at Munich. Hitler was the one who identified Tandy, not vice versa. He is the one who attempted to connect himself to a well-known British hero at precisely the time he was attempting to win over the British at the negotiating table. In fact, the only evidence we have to support the story 
is the coincidence that Hitler's unit was at Marcoing at the time the incident supposedly took place, and that we have the good word of history's greatest monster that he was, in fact, not on leave at the time, which is actually what some of the documentation might suggest. So, why the interest in the story? The interest in the story is the same interest Tandy had in the story once he was made aware of it. When the Second World War began, Tandy went down to the local recruiting station and tried to re-enlist. He didn't want Hitler to get away from him again, now that he knew who he was and what he was all about. As it happened, the injuries he sustained in the First World War kept him out of the Second. But historians love playing the what-if game. Well, I mean, I don't, but I'm going to anyway, because, well, that, that's why I'm making this episode. What if Tandy had pulled the trigger? Tandy died believing that he had once had the power to save millions of lives had he only succumbed to his baser instincts. This is nonsense, and if he were alive today, a just society would have expended considerable resources to soothe his soul and resolve any lingering guilt he might have had. Let's assume for the moment that Hitler had died that day. Would there have been a Treaty of Versailles? Of course. The victorious powers did not have hindsight on this one. They started the Second World War the same day they ended the First. With or without Hitler, Germany was ruined. There were still feelings of anger and resentment, and perhaps most importantly, there was still a strong sense of anti-Semitism that long predated Hitler. Hitler had said for years that getting rid of the Jews, his word was annihilate, was going to be a top priority once in power. But once he was there, he found plenty of people willing to carry out his orders. Without Hitler, National Socialism, i.e. Nazism, and International Socialism, i.e. Communism, still led incompatible existences so long as both remained on the same planet. Even if someone else didn't pick up the mantle of National Socialism in Germany, it wasn't as though the Weimar Republic was going to continue on. Even by the chancellorship of Heinrich Brüning in the early 1930s, power had been centralized to the point that a dictatorship was perhaps inevitable. And if it had not been the Nazis, there is good reason to believe that Germany could have gone to the opposite extreme with the communists. And sorry to my lefty friends, but according to the body count, that wasn't a better option. Democracy and totalitarianism were bound to collide. The real question Tandy should have been asking himself was not what could have been, but what other horror would have been. That's the story for today, but before I close, I do want to add one housekeeping item. I start each episode of Notes on History with the extraordinarily witty observation that I am a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. I know, I know, that can't possibly be true, right? Well, folks, it actually is true. I really don't know how to do this, and I wanted to make a request to my listeners. If any of you know what I can do to make my audio sound a bit clearer using nothing more than the audio editing software Audacity, I am officially soliciting suggestions with the obvious caveats that, as I often say, nobody goes into my line of work to make money. Once again, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email paul at notesonhistory.org. And of course, if you haven't already, please be sure to hit that subscribe button and maybe get all your friends to do the same. I promise you that you will be the life of the party once you introduce all your friends to the smooth, sultry sounds of my voice. Not a legally binding promise. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.